Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have another founder, another really exciting founder with a very exciting company that he's building. And we're going to be talking about all that good stuff that we like to hear. And especially, you know, in this case, I mean, they've done, you know, a few rounds. So we're going to be talking about when to raise, how to raise, why to raise from those partners. Uh, also, how to deal with the uh, with the different environments, you know, that, that are coming at you, like the war in Ukraine, the macro environment, and also a very interesting founding team. I got to tell you, it's the first time that I come across a founding team that is comprised of two married couples. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Matthew Darrow. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. That was a great lead in. We could uh, we could talk for hours on all those different topics. So I'm happy to be here and uh, looking forward to uh, sure shares a lot of my knowledge for the audience. I love it. So so let's do a little of a walk through memory lane here, Matt, because I know that, you know, being born and raised, you know, in 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 Pennsylvania, moving to Japan and coming back. I mean, there was like quite a little bit of moving there and and a lot of exciting stuff that happened, you know, while you were growing up. So walk us through things. You know, how was life growing up? Well, I think uh, I think I moved around a lot just because of my uh, my family's corporate uh, jobs and corporate careers. So, born in Ohio in the Midwest, relocated to Japan, relocated to Pennsylvania, relocated to California. A lot of folks thought that I was uh, part of an army or military family, um, but just really corporate America. But I think that that uh, started to drive a little bit of the entrepreneurial spirit. But I have a trouble uh, sort of sitting still and uh, and being still. I always like to push things forward whether or not it's uh, where I live or where I travel or the businesses that I operate. Um, but for me, you know, I'm an engineer by background. I knew I wanted to be an engineer when I was in second grade, and I followed that through all the way through my master's uh, out in California at UCLA. And I very quickly realized writing software code in a very small room all day by myself was just not going to be a fit for me long term. Uh, so I started to explore other careers, and I went from sort of you know, code writing, engineering into deploying custom enterprise software with global consulting firms like Deloitte, and ultimately wound up in the wild world of sales engineering, this mix of engineering and uh, sort of sales professional. And I spent nearly 15 years there. And uh, I learned a lot of lessons that ultimately uh, generated the impetus for Vivin, the company that uh, I co-founded and we're talking about today. And we're going to be talking about, you know, Vivian quite a bit. Uh, now, one thing that I'd like to ask you about is, you know, because obviously the uh, personality and the character is really shaping sh shaping up like during, you know, the early years. And I find that, you know, like we as humans, we go into different chapters and every single chapter, you know, are giving us, you know, the lens, the visibility, the character. I guess in your case, you know, moving so much when you were growing up, I mean, that sounds, you know, quite challenging, you know, also because of the uncertainty because of, you know, having to make new friends, you know, moving around, you know, new environments. Also, you were fluent in Japanese. Then all of a sudden, then you're not speaking Japanese. You're back to English. So I guess, how, uh, how do you think that shaped who you are and then also you being able to deal with uncertainty as a human being? 
I think the two things that come to mind for me, the first one is adaptability. Because you're right, you're, you're adapting to new environments, new living situations, new cuisines, new people. And I think that led, for me at least, to sort of an extreme comfort in the unknown. And when I think about starting a company from scratch or being a founder, um, you have to be really, really comfortable leaping into something where you're not really quite sure what's going to happen next. And I see that forged from so many of my formidable years, like moving somewhere when I didn't speak the language, uh, moving somewhere that was a very, very small town in Pennsylvania. You know, my, in my neighbors had 80 acres of farmland. And then relocating to Berkeley, California in high school, which is one of the sort of the most uh, diverse cities uh, in the U.S. So there's a, there's a lot that I learned along the way that I think just uh, helped me be adaptable. But then at the same time, you know, roll with the punches. Not everything goes your way and you live to learn from it and like from it and, uh, and grow at the same time. And the whole engineering approach and the problem solving, how, how did the love for that, you know, develop? <laughs> well, this one, this one's actually a little bit of an embarrassing uh, story because I, uh, I was infatuated with roller coasters when I was uh, when I was a kid. Uh, and that's actually what drove me to even sign up to get into engineering uh, as a discipline later on. Because, you know, I asked my I asked my dad, I was like, hey, um, how do you go and build these things one day? He said, well, you have to be an engineer. You need to know a lot about mathematics. You need to know a lot about physics. And that sent me on that journey from a very, very young age. And even now, while you know, I'm not uh, I'm not uh, sort of the one, you know, writing the software applications directly. I still uh, exercise this part of my love of engineering. You know, I'm a pilot on the side, too. So it's it's kind of the world's best uh, roller coaster where you can go and uh, fly yourself through the sky in any maneuver that you want. So things seem to turn out on that front. That's amazing. A pilot. What kind of stuff do you fly? Uh, I've got a Pitts S2B. It's a, uh, it's a unlimited aerobatic uh, aircraft. So it's a, it's, a, it's a blast. When you come out here, uh, it's a two-seater, so I can take you up. My God, it sounds like one of those crazy like Red Bull, you know, things that uh, that people used to do all kinds of uh, good stuff. So that's that's amazing. Now, one thing that I'd like to ask you here is how do you how did you find yourself into the venture world? Because obviously, Suora, you know, ended up your immediate step before, you know, founding Vivum. But uh, how do you enter the venture world? You know, the real story here is it wasn't a foregone conclusion. I, I wasn't, you know, marching through my career post-engineering saying, I know that I'm going to be a founder. And, you know, I had this timeline in my mind and I had this idea in my mind. Um, it sort of naturally uh, just all these points converged where, you know, after deploying SAP for Deloitte and then getting into the world of sales engineering, I was at Big Machines for a few years, which was a CPQ provider that got acquired by Oracle. So learned a lot there early in my career as an IC. Uh, and then moved over to Zora and was with them from single digits of ARR to hundreds of millions of ARR on the IPO journey. And at that time, honestly, uh, at the end of that IPO run, um, I was kind of burnt out. And I wasn't sure if B2B enterprise software was a space that I wanted to be. Um, it's super challenging and there's a lot of interesting dynamics with customers and politics and bureaucracy and everything that sort of goes into it. Um, I needed a break. And what found myself uh, into the world of venture ultimately was when I took time off. And, and mind you, this time off was uh, I bought a one-way plane ticket to New Zealand. My wife was at Google at the time and we said, you know, let's, uh, let's spend some time together to reconnect. And we weren't sure how long we would be gone. We took our house that was in Oakland at the time and we put it on Airbnb and it rented out for a whole year immediately. So we we're like, well, I guess, you know, we might be gone for a little while. And what happened is only after about three short months of 
having no responsibility except kind of the, the space to relax and think and unwind, I had a series of ideas that uh, I started to think about. And one of those became Vivint, which was, hey, you know, I spent 15 years of my career building and running sales engineering teams with no enabling technology. This is a critical group to driving revenue at B2B companies. This makes absolutely no sense. There's no product or technology or how do we start working on it? Uh, and that was the kickoff where I was writing the first lines of code and developing the first version of the website, even the first few pitch deck slides at an Airbnb in New Zealand. And ultimately, when I was working on it over 14 hours a day with my wife, uh, we said, we got to go back home to the States and put a founding team together because we can't stop uh, actually working on this idea. So you said that you had a few ideas. So how do you, you know, started validating each one of those and, and why out of those ideas, Bibun was the one that uh, you thought had more legs? It, it was the idea that I had the deepest personal experience with. I think, you know, I would classify the other ideas that I was kicking around as just a little bit more aspirational, things that maybe were tangential to hobbies I had or experiences that I had in the past. Um, but when it came to Vivin, um, it spoke so deeply to what I had just been through for over a decade that I had a very, very unique insight that a lot of folks in the market didn't have, which was what pre-sales was capable of, how it could impact their business, and what technology can and should do for this group, because it just never existed. So when I thought about, well, if we're going to build a really big company from scratch, we need to have a unique market insight. We need to have a point of view that nobody else has. And we need to be able to build technology to make all that come true. Um, and it uh, turned out that, uh, you know, when we started thinking about talking about what Vivint could be, uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't let it go, couldn't let it out of our minds and had to keep working on it. So then talk to me about getting the band together here, because I mean, it's, it's, I, mean I gotta tell you, I mean, I, I've met a lot of founders, but I, I think that you are the very first one uh, the very first company, the very first founding team that I come across that is not one, but two married couples. I mean, talk to me about this. Well, it, and, you know, it actually made the initial fundraising process kind of difficult because you're right. It's it's uh, it's not quite normal. Sometimes you'll run into one married couple. I think the, the first thing was in your point on how do you assemble the band? Um, so, you know, Dominique, my wife, who was ex-Google, she was with me down in New Zealand when we were figuring out and ideating Vivin. So we both had very, very uh, complementary but dissimilar skill sets. So myself, from a product engineering background, that's always been my focus. And she had a very big focus in customer success, support, and even enterprise sales. So we knew that there were two halves of this equation that naturally were complementary. Um, when we decided to come back to start the company, um, it was very, very clear who I was going to approach next. And it was my longtime friend of over a decade, John Bruce, uh, who I worked with at Zora on the IPO run, um, that is also extremely complementary, but not overlap in our skill set. John brings very, very deep technical engineering domain expertise as a sort of longtime computer scientist, one of the first five engineers at Pandora, he was able to sort of start to bring my initial concepts to life that I would say went from really rough MVP that I could put together to polished product that we could start to get initial customers on. And it just so happened, happenstance, John's wife, Claire, was a uh, lawyer by background running HR in legal and operations for a billion dollar business. And um, it was about time that they were itching for a startup journey. So, um, you know, we approached them 
and we're able to actually say, you know, if we put this group together, yeah, it might look a little strange because it's two married couples, but the reason we're doing it is because the skill sets were perfect. Complementary matches that amplified everybody and being able to go on a ride with uh, some of the folks that you've been closest to throughout your life is, uh, you know, there's something really special about it. That's incredible. Now, obviously, as someone that, uh, you know, personally that has done a business in the past with, with my wife, I think that you need to have two different levels of communication, right? Like when you're a married couple also, you know, pushing a, a hyper growth company like this, I mean, you need to have the communication that you would typically have at the house and then a different type of communication at the office. And if you're not able to really have this, you know, it can be a little, a little problematic. So how do you guys go about making sure that the communication levels are right? And then also in terms of the dynamics, how does that work? Well, this is, uh, you're spot on. And this podcast could quickly turn into marriage counseling very, very quickly here. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but a lot of this is, um, first of all, I can't, like when, when folks ask me the question around, you know, working with, you know, close friends or, you know, a spouse, I couldn't imagine building the business in any other way because startup building is all consuming. And, uh, and I don't think we would have the success that we have right now as a company um, if we both weren't all in on the same venture. It would have been far easier for Dominique to have gone back to Google and sort of me to try my hand at Vivin. But when we both fully committed to the idea, one, it makes it very clear, you know, this has to work and we will make it work no matter what. But you also ebb and flow together. So when times are good, when times are bad, when things are chaotic, when things are calm, you can sort of ride that wave at the same time. And it brings a level of sanity to kind of what is a very chaotic journey to begin with. Now, that's just how we approach it. But you're right on communication. You know, we got caught in that struggle very, very early on, which is the way that you might deal with a coworker just in meetings, uh, in performance reviews, right? There's a, you have to be very sensitive to that. So we try very, very hard that there's time that we work. And when we're not working, we don't talk about it at all. And that helps us, you know, sort of keep the fire going on the personal side of our lives while not impacting what we're able to do uh, from the uh, from the business standpoint. And to that point, you know, there's this book called The Founder's Dilemma, which is a great book. And it talks about also dynamics of co-founders and also how it gets a little bit tricky too when you're working with family members because, you know, sometimes, you know, you don't want to, or many times, you know, what could happen is that you don't want to hurt each other's feelings, right? So how have you guys, you know, been able to you know, come, a, come, come, you know, across this and, 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 and successfully. So in order to be able to just, you know, say the things the way that they are and just making sure that there's only one way that is forward for the company and leave each other's egos at the door. So, uh, the way that we approached that was from the very, very first pitch meeting where we went over to John and Claire's house for dinner to pitch them on the idea of Vivin and joining us on this journey. When that, when that was clear that it was interesting to them, we at that point stopped the discussion to be very clear about roles and responsibilities, who would be accountable for what. And having been through multiple B2B exits before, we know that there's natural difficult points in a company's lifetime where you might not be up for the task or you might need a new leader to come in or you might not be able to stretch to the next role. So we had all that open dialogue first. So if those thorny situations were to be uncovered later, one, we've already already talked about it, 
But at the same time, we knew what we were getting into as a founding team member. Who was going to bring what to the table? How would we hold each other accountable? How would we talk and treat and communicate each other? If we didn't get that out on the table first, I think it could have sort of derailed very quickly. And actually, honestly, a funny story for you about that dinner. And I talk about how important a core founding team is because it it keeps you going when times are difficult. Um, it, it wasn't the easiest sales pitch to John and Claire to have them join when when at the time when I was flying back from New Zealand. I didn't tell them what I was going to talk to them about. So down in my Airbnb, I had printed out a three-slide deck that told the story and the vision of what we were going to do at Vivin, And they thought we were going to be gone for a year. And it was only three months. So I sent them a text message. Hey, guys, we're going to be back. Let's get together for dinner. I have something I want to talk to you about. And they go, okay, I'm not, not quite sure what this could be. They're supposed to be on vacation. What could he possibly want to talk about? And, uh, and, and I show up. And I had my three slide pitch deck in this blue folder. And we still have this thing framed today in our houses. And when I showed up for dinner, there was no context. And they actually thought I was about to pitch them on an MLM pyramid scheme and try to rope them into some sort of nefarious, like entrepreneurial endeavor. And uh, they were like really, really concerned. They didn't want to be left alone with me at dinner because they weren't sure if I was going to you know, sequester one versus the other. But uh, when I started to pitch John on the idea and the pitch deck, you know, Claire could see him getting sort of sucked into the idea and she didn't know what was going on yet. So she was like really fearful and came running out of the house and say, OK, we got to stop this conversation. What the hell are you guys talking about out here? And then I brought her into the fold and, you know, it uh, it turned from there in a really great way that said, oh, this makes total sense. So, you know, when you recruit founders, you know, they're in comfortable positions and you have to sell the vision. And then it wasn't for another about four to five months after that event that we could fully dedicate our full time to doing this together. Um, John ultimately became beta customer number one for Vivin at his current uh, his current job that helped me shake out a lot of bugs and then made the leap full time with us as we push this forward. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I gotta tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, now, what about, tell us about what ended up becoming the business model of Bivun. How, how do you guys make money? 
So we are a B2B enterprise software company. So subscription. So think Salesforce. Platform fee with a user fee uh, based on the user types that we service. Now, up until, up until this moment, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Um, so this month, almost to this date, four years ago, we started our seed round. Um, and since that time, we've put together $131 million in funding. Um, from an awesome set of, uh, of VC players, from Unusual Ventures to Excel, Menlo, Atlassian Ventures, Salesforce Ventures, and Tiger Global. Wow. Sounds like the Oscars of VC. Eh? <laughs> now, 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 let me ask you this, because obviously, you know, in this case, you don't, you don't, you're not born know, knowing how to ride a bike. I mean, in, you got to fall, you got to get back up. And it sounds like the seat round was uh, quite bumpy. So, uh what, what, what happened during the seed round? What were some of the lessons learned? And, and how do you think that catapulted you uh, and, and the team to basically, you know, make sure that you would nail it, you know, on, on, the, on, the, on the follow-on rounds of financings? In the seed round, the short answer there is we, we literally did everything wrong, um, which was a shock to us because we had a lot of confidence. We had been through exits before. We had been through companies that acquired, been through companies that went through IPOs. We, we held leadership positions at these organizations. We felt really strongly about what it took to build and run a business. Um, and when it came to fundraising, though, we were first-time founders. So we called our network of you know, CEOs and, and uh, CROs and mentors that we knew to kind of get their take. And in all honesty, most of the stories that we were told were, hey, this is going to be really straightforward and quick. You know, Silicon Valley loves to invest in founders with ideas rather quickly. You kind of show up with a pitch deck and there's a term sheet and away you go. I'm like, okay. Um, and that, that like did not happen uh, at all. The first thing for us and the first mistake that we had made we waited a really long time to do the seed round. We actually bootstrapped Vivin for the first nine months um, on our own because we, we had this expectation that nobody would uh, sort of give you funding if you didn't have a proven business model and product already. So for nine months, we spent getting our first 10 customers, our first few hundred K in ARR, our contract set, our quoting process set, our, our V1 product out the door. And, and we were really proud of that. We were like, wow, like we've got a business model. We, we can generate revenue. Uh, we can build a product and ship a product. So this is going to be a cakewalk, right? Who wouldn't want to found us, right? We're just going to come in there and say, look at our business is growing. Uh, you know, can, can we go and start to sort of put uh, you know, put some put some uh, steam behind this. So, so the the next mistake that we made was who we approached, and this is, I think, one of the biggest lessons that I I would impart to uh, founders out there, people thinking about going through a, a journey, is sort of know know who uh, are the right VC partners and how to approach them. So for us, we had very high level connections from our prior lives and prior companies, and we knew that. We wanted to make sure we came in through a network connect, right? We didn't want to just walk in the front door of a VC firm or sort of respond to a cold outbound from, a, sort of from an analyst. Um, so we would always ask for introductions. But we were asking for introductions from partners and senior partners at firms that didn't specialize in early stage fundraising. They would specialize in Series A or Series B. But we thought, you know, hey, why does that matter, right? We've got a product. We've got customers. We've got revenue. Uh, why would that uh, sort of be a deterrent? And, you know, for two months, we took those meetings, took those calls, and they all ended with the same discussion of, 
yeah, I don't really quite have the conviction yet. And, you know, maybe this isn't the right time or stage for us to invest. So we burnt a lot of time and a lot of cycles, effectively telling our story to the wrong folks. So when that happens, we retrenched. We were, we were very, it was a very sort of, you know, sobering moment at the time, right? We had some revenue, we had some customers, we had a product and nobody wanted to fund us. We're like, what, what are we doing wrong here? So we went back to the drawing board. And the first thing that we did was said, well, let's build this from the ground up. And we got a series of very strategic angel investors that we knew from our prior lives that could help give us some early stage credibility. Folks like Tyler Sloat, who is the CFO of Zora and you know is the CFO at Freshworks. Folks like Godard Abel, who's the CEO over at G2. These are people that we had worked with over our careers who said, hey guys, we'll back you in these early stage rounds. We're happy to participate. Like use that as your jumping off point. Fen- phenomenal. And then we worked to approach uh, appropriately sized stage funds, which were seed stage funds. Now for us, same dynamic. We want to get in through introductions, want to get in through sort of the side door, not the front door to have really sort of strong connections. Um, and how we actually got hooked up with unusual ventures who led our series seed and has been with us along the entire way was completely happenstance because, because of uh, the fact that their founder, Jody Bunsell, was one of the CEOs of our customers, Harness. So we had told our customer, Harness, hey, would you be a reference in this early stage round? We're, we're putting this together. And our SE leader said, well, hey, Matt, you know that my CEO actually just started a seed fund. Maybe you should talk to them. Like, sure, okay, makes sense. And uh, we fell in love with you know, their approach and their team. And they already knew us as a customer. And sort of the rest was history from that, uh, from that point forward. That's amazing. Now, when it comes to um, to investors, and we see to employees too, it's a it's a vision. Having a really compelling vision that people can really live into, no, a future that is compelling enough for for them to say, hey, you know, I I really want to jump into this. Now, in that regard, you know, if you were to let's say go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Vivian is fully realized, what does that world look like? Uh, it's a world that looks like B2B selling has completely changed. That, that's what we're here to achieve. And you look at everything that's going in the market with products becoming more accessible, buyers becoming more educated, evaluations being more hands-on. The tried and true methodology of cold outreach from a sales development rep to long sales cycle with a sales rep to technical POC from a pre-sales engineer to ultimately a big services deployment that may or may not work out, um, that, that's going away. And you see that through product-led companies, consumption companies, B2B sales-led companies that want to get their product in the hands of their buyers. It's a very, very different experience that consumers and B2B buyers want now. So our ideal vision for the future state of B2B selling looks very, very different, and it's changing right now. And it's much more around everything is product-first, Everything is expert-led, and everything is can be done effectively, completely asynchronously if you want to, to come to your own conclusions. And now for us to attack that big space, which is how do we fundamentally change B2B selling, we needed a starting point. And the starting point and the most logical starting point is the sales engineer. Gartner just did this awesome study on the, the role of this function. And the number one preference of buyers in the market 
above the website, the products, talking to your sales rep, talking to your partner, is they want to interface with your technical expert who's the SE. And if this is the number one preference of buyer, and they want to be hands-on with your product and service, if we can enable this group that has never been enabled with technology, we can completely change the way companies go to market and do business. And that's why we work with some of the world's greatest companies, like a Snowflake or a Zoom or an Okta, um, companies that are really changing the way on, on how they do business and, uh, and grow in the enterprise. So obviously to, to, to get there, you know, you guys have had to, to adapt to uh, and to balance, you know, with certain, you know, events that were coming your way. I mean, from the war in Ukraine and Russia, where you had engineers there in Ukraine to the macro environment. Now, what, what would you say you've learned around, you know, execution and, and really adapting that execution to towards some of those unforeseen events that were thrown at you? <laughs> it's, it's, it's been difficult because even in four years, right, the first kickoff uh, was the pandemic. So just throw that one out there as well, where all of a sudden it wasn't clear if this could be a business or if business was even going to happen for the next six months or, or one year. Um, I think the first thing is we've had amazing venture partners who have been incredible when times have been difficult, even from when the pandemic hit, thinking about how do you drive like like a, a like an extension round to make sure that you can can keep pushing the vision forward, but at the same time, you know, sort of uh, not be held hostage with some of these external circumstances that you don't know how they're going to play out. Or the same thing during you know a recession or a market downturn. We've been fortunate enough to work with board members that sort of have been there, done that for the last, you know, two, three decades, that they have a lot of really great sound advice on how do you keep an even keel when things are a little bit, you know, choppy up and choppy down, you know, if the time comes. But then you get circumstances that honestly, folks have never seen before. And I think, you know, the, the war in Russia and Ukraine was a great example of that. Um, most individuals that we spoke with, you know, that had engineers in that region of the world, We've all we were all going through it together for the first time that we weren't sure how to keep lines of communication open. We weren't sure how to keep payroll going. We weren't sure you know, what it meant if they were drafted or how we would drive coverage for that. I think a big reason there is, you know, having a very strong network of founders was helpful because, um, again, going back to ambiguity, you're sort of you know, trying to make this stuff up together as you go along. And what you can do, I think, at its core is is just try to come back to you know what are the main things that we're trying to achieve and the main things for us was how do we ensure the safety and the stability of our people and everything else revolved around that and that came up with really interesting solutions of how we would keep payroll going how we could keep them connected to our company how we could actually keep them engaged um, how do we keep them safe but then at the same time you know they wanted to be actively part of the team so they wanted to be part of the engineering scrum still and how do we do that in a safe manner and uh, and those are the things that you know, sort of no one uh, no one can guide you through it and write it down. But we come from a place of our our employee safety was paramount, and we wanted to keep these folks you know together and with Vivin and uh, and sort of a founder community sort of shared examples on how we can make that possible. Now let's say Matt that I put you into a time machine, and I bring you back in time. I bring you back to that moment where you were in New Zealand. You know maybe admiring the beautiful views you know, of uh, the landscapes that you have there, which is remarkable. But let's say you were able to sit down right there next to your younger self. That was, you know, 2021 when basically, you know, like you guys were coming up with this idea. And 
let's say you had the opportunity of telling that younger Matt one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Boy, you know what? No one's ever asked me that question. What immediately came to mind for me was to say, it's going to be hard, but do it every single time. That was, that was you know, and, and I think that, that that is, we've learned so much along the way. The number one thing that I would tell my younger self or tell listeners out there that are thinking of starting companies is to do it and to go for it. Um, because so many great ideas just sort of go unfulfilled because of the risk and the ambiguity and you're unsure. And we really threw caution to the wind and freaked out our families and freaked out our friends that, you know, we, we had no salaries. We didn't even have our house. We, we were just trying to kind of roll this thing. But it's, uh, it's been one of the best professional and personal experiences of my life. And, uh, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. And this years wise, right, we four years ago, it was 2019, when we raised that seed round. So I was, I was sitting at Lake Wanaka, New Zealand in 2018, doing the ideation. So it has been a little bit of a clip, which is great. But I'm with you that uh, I, I would say, you know, you got to go for it every single time. Yeah, no, thank you for providing the dates. For some reason, I thought it was 2021, but uh, 2018. So let's not let's not take uh, years <laughs> eh, away, those years of uh, tremendous, you know, uh, sweat and tears that you guys have put into this. So, so let me ask you this, Matt, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, LinkedIn, happy to connect there. I, uh, I, I share a lot of uh, not only my own experience in the space of pre-sales and, and what we're seeing in the market and how B2B is changing. But then just generally, the things that I've seen building and running a company from scratch, building culture in a 100% remote environment, which we are, we have no office space, we have over 100 employees in nine different countries around the world, uh, to you know managing through ups and managing through downs, to building and structuring the right board or going through the right fundraising side. I mean, one of the things that we, we didn't highlight, but I think it's, it's relevant, you talked about telling a compelling story. Man, my first version of a pitch deck was like a 45-slide Deloitte-level thesis that really nobody cared about at all. And when I went through the process, it boiled down to two simple slides that we really raised all of the funds on the back of. The first was, we're doing what our mentors did, which was live a problem firsthand and have a very unique market insight that sort of only you're privy to. And I look back toward you know, our CEO mentors, whether or not it's you know, Team Zoe, who was early Salesforce that built the internal billing system that became Zora, because his aha moment was every company was gonna have a subscription service like Salesforce, or Karthik Rao from you know, VMware that had a, a whole bunch of insight into you know, microservices and monitoring, which became SignalFX, which is where John Bruce came from, that uh, got acquired by Splunk. Right? We, were, we were following the same pattern, which was we had deep experience and expertise in a domain, and we were going to follow in the footsteps of building the productized version of what we personally struggled through. Now, the second slide was succinctly, how big is this opportunity? And for us, we are an unabashedly proud category creator. And when you look across all the functions in B2B, there's so many multi-billion dollar companies built on the backs of sales, service, success, product, engineering, support. But the team pre-sales that is responsible for driving revenue with sales reps has nothing. And that simple picture of the world 
on how many successful companies were tangential around all these other functions and the big void for technology for one of the most critical revenue drivers in every B2B company, those two things together allowed us to propel our vision forward. I love it. Well, hey, Matt, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Same here. I'm, uh, I'm, glad, uh, I'm glad to be part of the show and uh, impart some of my knowledge and uh, talk about our very, very unique founding structure. And I'm glad I could be the first <laughs> to interview in that direction. Thanks, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.